Good evening, beloved community. This is a good, good view right here. You know, as I was sitting here, it was really so interesting to pay attention to all that was arising in my body. Such a curious thing, the, the pressure of my heartbeat and how it modulated itself and changed my breath. At one point I was smiling and then I, I felt like I wasn't going to be able to bring my, the corners of my mouth back together. Mm-hmm. Yes, this body. It is the place where all experience takes place. I'm going to begin with um, a quote that I wrote down from Andrea's talk a few days ago, which really stood stood out for me. The more intimate we become with mindfulness, the more familiar we become with its coming and going. So I had the opportunity to practice that while everyone was arriving this evening. So I'm just going to launch right in now. Talk a little bit about the Satipatthana Sutta which lays out a formula, a direct path to liberation through the, through the development of self-knowledge. In this sutta, the Buddha offered four foundations of mindfulness. And briefly, there are ways to come to self-realization. The first foundation of mindfulness is observation of the body. The second is observation of sensations in the body. The third points to ways to observe the mind, also a part of the body. And the fourth foundation points to observations of the contents of the mind with a complete list of specific phenomena that's contained therein. Over and over, the Buddha points out that the path to liberation can only happen by examining the truth of what we are, not who we are, what we are. The way to undertake this examination is to contemplate and become intimately familiar with the aggregate components that make up this vessel that we call the body. The investigation must be more than a conceptual exercise of imagining the body. This is why the sutta guides us on a journey of direct experience. 
And similar to something that was mentioned earlier in a Dharma talk about pain, pain is merely a concept. When we feel an unpleasant sensation in the body and reflect upon it as simply pain, we skip over completely the direct experience of what has arisen. And we remain entranced by this concept, which is basically empty. When we bring our awareness to the myriad components of this particular sensation of pain, we will be able to become intimate with the phenomena that we call pain. Tightness, heat, radiating or creeping sensation, piercing, throbbing, tingling, increase and subsiding in intensity. Direct experience. Not simply pain. And so it is with the body. A complex system of many elements and phenomena that are continually rising and passing away in each nanosecond of our lives. The only way to come to the realization of what we truly are is to bring our awareness to all of these aggregate parts. This can be done through any of the four foundations of mindfulness. One of the ways that my own social and cultural conditioning shows up is in the way that I've learned to compartmentalize things, everything around me, separating it out. I never saw the mind as a part of the body. It always seemed to be floating out there somewhere and coming in like signals. I, You know, it just so ephemeral, untouchable. Creating lines of separation permeated my worldview and actually continues to be reinforced and supported by the cultural milieu in which I live, in which we all live, with its borders and barriers and cultural and ethnic designations, its class delineations, statehoods. and sense of separateness from the very earth of which we are all a part of. That is really maybe the most baffling when I think of it. We see ourselves as people that walk on the earth, yet we are earth that walks. An integral part of this organism that we rest on. Mindfulness erases all those lines of separation. It draws awareness to the subtle spaces in between experience. It teaches us to listen to the interval between words. It turns our attention towards the gap that goes mostly unnoticed. 
the pause at the top of the breath. The awareness of not just the hindrance itself, but also of the absence of obstructions to our practice. It shines light into the juncture of transition and points out that transition never stops, that we are in a constant dance of movement and change. Mindfulness drops our awareness down into the layers below the obvious and points to increasingly more subtle experiences, such as the temperature of air as it passes into the body through the nostrils and how that temperature changes on the exhale. Not simply the concept of breathing, or the sensation of air as it barely licks at moisture on the skin, or even the tiny shadows of darkness that give depth of perception to everything we see, that without them, it would all be flat. As Andrea so eloquently put in her talk, Um, put in her talk on Friday, it brings you to an awareness of the spaces around the edges of the wandering mind. And on a more relational level, it brings you to an awareness that there's no space between any of us or anything. That what we perceive as space is merely an extension of the thing that we call edges. These are the margins and intervals of subtlety that we are training the mind to become intimate with, to become curious about, to be in inquiry with. These spaces of emptiness and seeming void are the places where insight lies. So the Satipatthana is a map drawn by the Buddha to help guide us into the subtlest expanse of the direct experience of the body. Which brings me to the mindfulness practice of Vedana, which is the topic of this talk, um, talk tonight. Vedana is the second foundation of mindfulness. It is translated from the Pali word as feeling tone, not to be confused with feelings or emotions. If we listen to the bell when it rings, and we hear that tone, it is not the solidity of this bell. It is something more ephemeral, subtle. I single Vedna out here not to separate it, like I usually do, from the other foundations, because they are truly inseparable. Feeling tone can only happen in the body, which is the first foundation. 
It is cognized by the mind, which is the third foundation. And that cognition is shaped by the contents of the mind. So there can be no separation. It's inseparable. But it does point to the practice of any of these foundations of mindfulness is full and complete in itself because it's not separated from any other part of the foundations. I turn the attention to Vedna because it is such a powerful mindfulness practice, capable of cutting through dukkha, the dukkha of samsara, the suffering of birth in this existence. The practice of Vedna can cut through that like a sword, a swift sword. Everything that arises in the mind is accompanied by a sensation in the body. Here again, there's no separation. The mind, heart, body are all one. So just a little expose on Vedna. According to the teaching, there are five types of Vedna. Sukha Vedna. I wonder if you can imagine which one that is. That's pleasant body sensation. Sukha sounds like it's sweet. <laughs> Dukkha Vedna. We all know what that is, yeah? Unpleasant. Dukkha. Dukkha, dukkha, dukkha. Totally unpleasant. Somanasa Vedna. Pleasant mental feeling. So we've moved from the body sensation, mental, pleasant mental feelings. Domanasa Vedna. Unpleasant. That D is in there like dukkha. Domanasa. Aduka Masuka Vedna is neither pleasant nor unpleasant sensation, either in the mind or the body. So those are the the five types of Vedana. So when you hear about worldly and unworldly Vedana, to to simplify that, worldly Vedana resides in the material realm of body sensation, And unworldly Vedna resides in the realm of mental activity, mental formations, perceptions, etc. It is also associated with spiritual practice, the sensations of what arises in concentration or the pleasant nature of inquiry, the arising of energy, the sensation of tranquility. Unworldly. Not material. So dukkha. Dukkha is experienced in the body, even though it may seem sometimes like it is out there somewhere in the external world. 
It is all happening right here, right here. And there are only six things that we ever do in the whole course of our lives. And they happen right here in the body. We see, we smell, we taste, we hear, we feel sensation, and we think. That's all we ever do. Everything else that we turn our attention to is an embellishment layered on top of the experiences of contact that happen at those six sense spheres the eyes, nose, mouth, and so on. We cannot move towards liberation unless we refine our awareness to ever more subtle layers of experience. Again, I say that. Liberation does not reside on the upper layer of skin or in the external world. We must drop down below the surface of the obvious And this is why we cultivate mindfulness. One of those subtle spaces is located at the juncture of when an object connects with its corresponding sense organ. The object is an apple connecting with the eye. So the space is when that object connects with the sense organ and before the rise of emotion or story or reaction. That is the space, the subtle space of Vedana. However, without the intention to cultivate awareness of Vedana, It can be so easily skipped over. It is so subtle. Vedna is the subtle tone of feeling that is struck before the conditioned mind rushes in with its like symphonic storyline with the horns and the, the, the trap drums and completely drowns out the clear and unembellished tones of pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Vedana. I like to sometimes characterize Vedana as feeling stripped down to its least common denominator. You know, um, a lot of times we hear the Buddha referred to as a physician. I like to see see the Buddha as um, a mathematician. Because all throughout the teachings, he has distilled, an alchemist, he has distilled everything down to its finest quality and just gotten rid of all of the chaff from the grain. It's a very powerful key to liberation, and I'm going to get to that as I go along. I'm just priming the pump right now. So without awareness of its arising, it gets trampled by the conditioned mind. 
the practice of drawing our awareness to Vedna can in itself lead to a great sense of liberation from the still suffering with this situation. So, um, Vedna can lead um, to a great sense of liberation from the (coughs) proliferation of stories that hold us in a state of discomfort and suffering. So pleasant, Sukha Vedna, Sukha, I like to say that. As humans, our tendency, as we know, is to cling to all that is pleasant, to let it linger and and hang on, you know, just not let it go, to string it out and to try to come back to it again and again and again. Even though we know, ultimately, we're going to experience the disappointment and dissatisfaction of never being able to step in that stream again but we keep going for it. That clutching and clinging is like addiction where you just keep, you know, you're trying to get that same hit again and you just keep eating it or you keep doing it and it is just filled with disappointment and dissatisfaction. But when uh, we bring our awareness to the pleasant signpost of Vedana, this awareness encourages less tension in the body. How about that? More relaxation and spaciousness. We become less likely to be incited towards the survival reactions of fight or flight. Because when we bring our attention to Vedana, we can transcend the story that requires those actions and reactions. Pleasant Vedana. Unpleasant Dukkha Vedana. You know, we know what that is. Our tendency to always push away the experiences that are unpleasant. That's what we do with but neither pleasant nor unpleasant Vedna is very, very good to think about. We, t- we tend to skip right over neutral. Neither pleasant or unpleasant. It often doesn't even come into our awareness. The feeling tone is the wallflower that gets lost in the presence of the rock stars of pleasant and unpleasant, the big things. As mentioned in earlier talks, we tend to ignore it, feel boredom, distance ourselves, disassociate from neutral, and sometimes even try to turn it into something pleasant or something unpleasant. Try to completely alter it like... I'm not trying to go there. I'm not trying to not feel anything. <laughs> you know, this reaction is is um, not merely because we are trying to, the brain is trying to latch on to something, something that we can feel. That too. 
Like, I want a love I can feel. You know, it's not just that. An essential function of the brain is to protect the body that houses the electrical impulses that animate our being. The the pleasant is not perceived as a threat to our survival. Rather, it's perceived as something that enhances it, increases our well-being, brings joy. So it feels like we're, we're surviving in a really joyful place. Delusion. <laughs> the unpleasant can get associated with being a threat in the mind. There are certain neurological signals that happen during unpleasant experience, such as, you know, an increased heartbeat, tightening of the jaw, tension in the neck and shoulders, heightened adrenaline levels. And, you know, it doesn't even have to be something life-threatening. You know, it could be the, the green peas. You know, I just don't want the green peas. Oh, you know, it can start right there. Many of these physiological signposts are associated with fight or flight responses that are closely tied to our survival. So it's no wonder that our impulse to push away the unpleasant is there to push it away. But that also means that our reactions are ruled by a body without awareness, a body in a state of ignorance, a mind-body. I'm not trying to put all the bad news on the body, the mind-body and the heart. So neutral, uh, on the other hand, is really an acquired taste, you know, like ginkgo nuts. Has anybody ever smelled a ginkgo nut? Whoa. But, you know, it's a delicacy for some people. You know, it's definitely got to be an acquired taste. Or or like the, the bitter taste of coffee. Before those of you who are coffee drinkers, before um, you really started liking it, I wonder if you can remember how bitter it is. Well, you know, not everybody, some people... F- say bitter is pleasant, Uh, you know, usually here in the U.S. is sweet. Sweet is what's pleasant. But, you know, it's it's an acquired taste, neutral. It requires some experience and some practice. The subtle truth of neither pleasant nor unpleasant Vedna is that it is the feeling tone that is most close to equanimity. In that there is no pull to construct a self that needs to push away an aversion or grasp into craving. It's neutral. When we allow our attention to connect with and stay with neutral Vedna, we begin to get a taste of what it feels like to rest the mind in a place of calm. Oh, but that's not usually what we're trying to do. Give me something I can feel. 
So, you know, Nutrivedna doesn't seem to activate anything of particular importance to hold on to or offer something that will reify or solidify a sense of self. Nutrivedna doesn't validate the self. A quote from Andy Olneski, teacher and scholar at the um, Barry Center for Buddhist Studies. Grasping is not something that is done by the self, but rather the self is something done by grasping. The self is constructed each moment for the simple purpose of providing the one who likes or doesn't like, who grasps or pushes away what is unfolding in experience. I'm just going to let you sit with that for a second. Curiosity and inquiry, two things that we've been talking about quite a bit, are the springboards that advance our awakening. In order to drop below the obvious, in order to move into more and more subtle spaces of awareness, it is important to abandon aversion so that we can engage in an investigation of what has arisen. When we see something unpleasant, feel something unpleasant, we tend to want to turn our face away from it, aversion. But how can we become intimate with it? How can we come to know it? How can we find where it resides in the body if we're busy trying to get rid of it? Curiosity, inquiry, investigation, major pieces of our practice. And they are actually protectors of the mind, for they lift us out of the chaos of story and position the mind for viewing. So, you know, we, we know this analogy of like being in the eye of the storm. You're in the eye of the storm and you're like, you know, just rolling around and and being pushed around and trying to avoid that rooftop that's coming towards your head. And then to be lifted out of that and sat on a mountaintop, you have a whole nother view. So curiosity and inquiry, very, very important pieces of our practice. In this way, the practice of investigation totally allows us to step away and simply become a witness. The mind is no longer caught up in the action. Curiosity and inquiry liberate the mind from the drama of thought storms, fabrications, and delusions. The beauty of this practice of Vedna is similar to noting It allows you to name the sensation before or even during the episode of experience. In other words, when we're caught in thought or any of the hindrances, the moment we become aware, 
The practice of Vedna allows a pause, a space to notice bare sensation, to step back from the whirlwind of experience and notice the quality of experience as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. That simple practice immediately breaks the cycle of becoming, that cycle of rebirth, before we revive the self. It immediately breaks it. You know, I just will share this. I'm, I'm sure I'm going to run out of time. But, um, like, I can be driving along and um, someone can cut me off. And then I'm like, I want to, like, say something. I want to shout something. And... And then I say, unpleasant. (laughs) And I don't have to go there. I don't have to do it. I don't have to take on that identity. I don't have to birth that self and then go through all the suffering that follows the birth. That's an example of Vedna. It's powerful, simple it seems. You know, Vedna holds a strong position in the practice of awakening. It was so important to the Buddha that they included it in three of their great lists. In the Satipatthana, which I just talked about, the second foundation of mindfulness, it's also nestled into the fourth foundation as one of the aggregates. And it shows up in the cycle of dependent origination, which Greg touched upon briefly on Friday. Briefly, dependent origination is a teaching on the 12 dependent links, each one successively giving rise to the next in a progression that starts with ignorance of the Four Noble Truths and continues through successive gateways of suffering into sickness, old age, and death. Vedna is at the heart of that. So that's some powerful chain cutting right there. It can break the link of becoming by interrupting the cycle of craving and clinging. Listen to me now, Vedna. Vedna's kind of rocking, I think. The 12 links of dependent origination begin with ignorance of the Four Noble Truths. Outlined by the Buddha briefly, that dukkha exists. No matter how you shake it, dukkha is there. It's going to be there. And the cause of dukkha is craving that then gives rise to clinging or pushing away. And that there is a way out of this mess that's hopeful. And the way is the Eightfold Path. Without that basic knowledge of those truths, we live a life of ignorance. We act from 
a deep state of ignorance that's ruled by our conditioned habits of mind and body. So ignorance is the first link in the chain of samsara, suffering. And the second link is the mind-body complex. Yeah? And that consists of the six sense fears, the six things that we only ever do in our life. Contact arises at those doors, and that's when Vedna is there. They arise right alongside each other. Contact and Vedna. Contact and Vedna. They're separate, but they ride in together. Once the self has taken birth, then the cycle of samsara progresses through the remaining links that end in death. So you might ask, how can we possibly become deathless? Of course, we're born, we become old, we get sick, we die. This is the gross materiality. This is the surface. Once again, the Buddha has distilled that down. The cycles of samsara happen moment to moment, every day. This birthing of the self happens. It happens when we're going to the bathroom and we smell something in there. It happens when we go through the line to get our food and we decide, I don't like that or I do like that and I need more of it. And it's this birth that drives our suffering. Here again, the Buddha offers practices to drop us below the obvious, below the literal material plane, the worldly plane. Vedna has the capacity to halt rebirth in its tracks. And this is why it rests at the heart of the cycle of dependent arising and why it is potentially such a swift path to liberation. The mindfulness practice of Vedna has the power and potential to free us from the prison of our stories. Just checking my time here. So if the tone is unpleasant, it is not to be cultivated and should be abandoned. But not with aversion. It's possible, though, to turn towards it in an investigation of the sensation of unpleasant in the body. This allows us to deepen our understanding and move into the intimacy with where we hold that unpleasant 
sensation in our bodies because that's where it is. And after this investigation, it's to be abandoned. It is unskillful. There's no need to cultivate it. If the feeling tone is pleasant, again, we drop the storyline. And the link to rebirth is broken. And we are free to investigate the place in the body where pleasure resides. Is it in the heart? Perhaps the throat? Perhaps it's in a general relaxation in the body. Once we turn our attention to where it resides in the body, it can then be expanded upon, cultivated, and transformed into joy. But only when we drop that storyline and we are with simply the pure sensation in the body of pleasantness. When we bring an interest and curiosity to investigate these sensations in the body, we set up conditions for energy to arise. That energy creates the condition for rapture, joy to emerge, which can then lead to tranquility. And once tranquility is present, the condition has been made for the cultivation of concentration. Clarity. Collected mind. I can't stress enough the importance of relaxation and ease in the body in our practice. We can't get to the concentration without that. It's essential. So let me give you um, my personal example of, of how I first stumbled upon concentration in my practice. You know, I had little peaks of it, you know, two seconds here and there. Um, I was on a... Um, a month-long retreat. Struggling, oh, struggling with wandering mind. Just struggling with it. And, and it wasn't all dukkha, you know. Some of it was quite pleasant, you know, as an artist. You know, the best time to conceptualize some, some beautiful artwork is while you're meditating, yeah? So, you know... That's my problem, you know. I, I don't want to let it go, you know. I don't want to let it go. But um, I was sitting, and just things were floating around in my mind, and then I don't remember what it was exactly, but it was something that had happened um, maybe the day that I came on retreat that was really, really... Um, funny. It was really funny. And uh, so it came to my mind. And then I realized that I was just smiling 
while I'm sitting there. And then that, what arose inside me was I was just laughing inside. In fact, I was afraid I was going to laugh out, out loud in the hall. I mean, it was tickling me so bad. Some memory that I had. Pleasant. And I dropped the storyline. And I settled down into my body and found the place where that pleasant sensation resided. It was right here in my chest and up in my throat. It was just vibrating. And and I cultivated that. I stayed with it. I felt into every bit of it. I was curious. It was interesting to me. And so I stayed with that curiosity. And I let that pleasure ride me right into joy. Oh, so now I'm having this intense, beautiful, joyous sit. My whole body is smiling. No story, just pure sensation. Story gone. And suddenly I went into this deep tranquility. That's what joy will do. It will take all the bones out of your body and just allow you to completely relax. It was so tranquil. And of course, I rode that. I just stayed with that. Wholesome mind state. Cultivate it. I really got to know what wholesome mind state is and what it means to cultivate it. Then it came to a point where it got really intense, almost unpleasant. It was like this rapture that was like, oh, whoa. But I stayed with that. I knew that it was good. And then suddenly, for any of you who may be, um, you know, Trekkies or Star Trek people or know about that, it was like when the Starship Enterprise, like, goes into warp speed, and it was like, and then suddenly I was, like, completely concentrated no nothing, no thoughts, no wandering mind, no more rapture, just being, just pure being. This is what Vedna can do for you. So, you know, I had some more stuff. I left it in my room because I thought this was going to be enough. But um, 
I'm going to close now with just saying that mindfulness, when developed, has an aspect of being non-reactive and non-judgmental. It doesn't push or pull. Mindfulness brings us closer to experience and allows us to break the chain of suffering. I think that's what we're here for. Thank you for your kind attention. Let's allow the words to drop away and sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.